Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Auntie Tula <laughs> says, now you are family. Okay. All my life, I had a lump at the back of my neck right here. Always a lump. Then I started menopause and the lump got bigger from the hormones. <laughs> It started to grow. So I go to the doctor and he did the bio, the B, the bios, the B, the bobopsy. <laughs> Inside the lump, he found teeth and a spinal cord. Yes. Inside the lump was my twin. Spanakopita! You hungry? At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Eleanor Cummins. And I'm Jason Letterman. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease of some kind of fact or story that we picked up in the course of being fascinating people who work for Popular Science magazine. And we decide which one we absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Jason, since you're a rare guest, why don't you uh, start with your tease? Sure. I did some research into the only person to win both a Nobel Prize in Physics and its super sassy counterpart, the <laughs> Ig Nobel Prize in Physics. Oh. That's the best description of the Ig Nobel I've ever heard. Oh, thank the you. The super sassy counterpart. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor? I wanted to answer the question of if eating your twin in the womb can give you superpowers. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I <Great>. did. <laughs> she went there. Wow. Okay, cool. I am going to talk about how we finally stopped poisoning our own food thanks to a man who poisoned a bunch of test subjects. Thank God Classic for that. Classic science experiments. <laughs> Woo! Um, uh, I would gosh. like to hear about twins. Yeah, the twins, I really just... As Must a twin, know. I'm very invested in oh, this. You guys, right, you I'm are. so excited. Yeah. I'm going to explain your life to you, Jason. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this all started, I was having a conversation with one of our colleagues um, about Marshawn Lynch, um, a great player of the football. <laughs> and uh, apparently, 
his mother told USA Today, I'll just read the quote. I don't want to embellish this. I'm just going right. to read it as is, you know, journalism. I'm ready. They just knew that Marshawn was living off two placentas. She, referring to a doctor, told me that with that, he would be an amazingly strong child. And I was like, let's learn more. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, this is like a very extreme example of this, but there's definitely, I feel like, this like cultural meme where you can just tell people all the time that like you ate your twin or they ate their twin and that it has all of these, you know, like mystical repercussions. The lump Did that in ever my happen? Neck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like a doctor, your aunt, the aunt from Big Fat Creek Wedding, everyone's just talking about eating twins all the time. So here's what I found out. It is definitely true that you can absorb your twin in the womb. Mm -hmm. okay. Just important facts to establish. So it often happens um, really early in pregnancy, which means that there are typically like very few signs of it um, in most cases. So in Marshawn's situation, um, his uh, doctors that delivered him knew that this had happened um, because there actually was like a second placenta. Mm -hmm. And so that's something you see sometimes where it's like there's this extra material that was evidence of some sort of, you know, like fetal activity that uh, did not come to a, a full uh, conclusion. And so, uh, there, so there actually was a twin. For Marshawn Lynch. In, there was a twin, okay. right? But whether or not it gave him superpowers is the journey we are on. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so that that's, like, fully possible. Um, and so, like, Marshawn's mom was probably one of the few people who actually had real evidence of this, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, we actually think that this phenomenon is pretty um, uh, common. And when it's identified, it's called the vanishing twin syndrome, which is a great term for a syndrome if you ask me. Or a band. Yes, totally. Um, and it's not like problematic most of the time, um, especially when it happens, um, you know, early in the pregnancy. But later in the pregnancy, it actually like can have a lot of serious consequences. When a twin, um, you know, dies in the womb, it can have uh, repercussions for the baby that is still alive mm -hmm. um, and put them at risk of different diseases or maybe even also um, dying just because, you know, like they're sharing a very um, small environment. Sure. Um, um, yeah. And, like, the same factors could be acting on both of them. But also, like, you know, when you're sharing, uh, you know, like, essentially, as I understand the placenta to be a blood sack, that <laughs> there's, like, you know, a lot of exchange of materials. And, right. and that mm -hmm. can also, mm -hmm. you know, affect you. So, so yeah, you know, it's just sort of like run-of-the-mill pregnancy shenanigans, um, as I gather. But <laughs> this is where this gets uh, really off, off the rails. It can be much, much, much more severe um, so Aunt Tula, you know, she had a little teratoma, and, and mm. that's actually really possible. Right. Like the idea With that, the teeth and the spinal cord? Yeah. And so, you guys, it's <laughs> called um, fetus in fetu. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to cry before we get done with this. I'm so scared. <laughs> I'm the freak who already knows what fetus in fetu is. <laughs> of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't, so tell My me friend, everything. fetus in fetu. Okay, so it was first identified in this 1808 case study that I read the entirety of at like 10.30 last night. Um, so, so basically this doctor keeps visiting this kid who has just like all of these like horrific signs of, of sort of, some sort of like gastrointestinal disease. Like he's just sick all the time, this poor little guy, you know, 200 years ago. Um, and he has this really hard mass in his stomach. And mm -hmm. so every, but no, but no one can figure out like what to do about it. It's not like there are a lot of tools at their disposal. Um, and so then the kid dies, and this doctor who had, you know, been unable to help him his whole life is persuaded by this other, his, his fellow doctor, Dr. Birkbeck, to do an autopsy. Quote, 
Dr. Birkbeck, whose zeal for such inquiries induced me to accompany him, um, persuaded him to do this uh, this autopsy. It's not something you want a reputation for having zeal for. Yeah, that's classic Birkbeck, you guys. <laughs> it's very strange. Um, and so they, they did this autopsy, and, and here is the conclusion. After having thus far ascertained the relative situation of the tumor, um, with an apostrophe for some reason, and removed it from the body, I punctured it. 78 ounces or 4 pounds 14 ounces of a limpid fluid escaped having the color of an infusion of green tea with a very slight tinge of blood. It gets worse. (laughs) The opening was now dilated to expose the fleshy mass which had been felt during life and it may be easily conceived that we were greatly surprised on finding that this substance had unequivocally the shape and characters of a human fetus. Mm. There is a drawing... That oh no! In yeah, I don't. I didn't print out a picture because okay. I can't handle it. There is a drawing like in this case study um, of like what they found, and also um, the super graphic Wikipedia page shows modern photos right. of this Great. phenomenon. But it is like a, a very identifiable, super tiny human yeah. with like you know like an arm and a fist. Um, and so it turns out that like you can absorb not just some of the you know placental materials or the very like early stage twin in the womb, but like the entire like developing body of the other baby you're you're co you know you're co living with. Yeah. And so this is very rare. We're talking like two hundred identified cases mm-hmm. um, since this eighteen oh eight study. So very very rare. Um, but obviously, like when it does happen, it is something that is um, very uh, well covered because it's right. just like whoa, what bodies are scary. Um, and so in two thousand fifteen, uh, sort of the most recent, very well documented case, um, a, a little girl, a newborn, she was like very sick, um, with, and doctors actually identified. A spine, intestines, bones with bone marrow, um, primitive, quote, that's a quote, brain matter, a rib cage, and an umbilical cord inside wow. her body that were not her own, that were those from a twin. Oh, my God. So, and, and the doctors in this case study, um, you know, from 2015, they determined that the twins would have had to have been absorbed 10 weeks before their growth stopped. So that's, like, very late um, in the game. But they also noted that, you know, like, no one really understands absorption fully. Um, and so it was, like, possible that the extra, the extra fetuses had actually been absorbed much earlier mm-hmm. in the pregnancy and just continued to grow inside. That is terrifying. Yeah, and just continued to grow inside the baby that was ultimately born. That's really scary. So not something to be super concerned about, um, but the vanishing twin syndrome, less so than this like fetus and fetus situation, people think is maybe becoming more common um, because of in vitro fertilization. Mm. If you don't know, like with in vitro, when you're you know implanting fertilized eggs into your uterus, you're sort of trying to like maximize the odds that mm-hmm. that works out. So you tend to put in more than just you know like one egg, and so that becomes a situation where if more multiple pregnancies sort of start to go along and then some are maybe absorbed back because the body wants to have as few fetuses as possible to deal with, um, that you might just be seeing a lot more vanishing twin syndrome. All of this I found so 
fascinating. Um, but I have not answered the question of <laughs> does eating your twin in the womb make you stronger? I tried Googling this. Um, <laughs> I lit- literally, Google now knows that I searched at like 10.30 last night, does absorbing twin make you stronger? Um, not great results. What do you know? So I, um, I decided to ask a doctor, like a responsible Wow. Person. Yes, thank you. I had a phone call with a doctor. I, Reporting. I talked to another human being today for you. <laughs> and um, and it actually turns out that absorbing your twin has, like, a lot of hazards. Like, mm. there is no mm-hmm. research to suggest that it would be beneficial. The doctor was like, I don't even know how you would try to, like, operationalize that. Like, how would right. you try to go about studying, you know, some sort of benefit? But he was like, it's very clear um, that we have, uh, you know, a lot of sort of negative side effects. So the doctor I spoke with was Nigel Panich, and he just, like, launched. He was like, <laughs> I, like, called him, and he was like, huh? And I was like, it's it's me from Popular Science. And he was like, oh, I've read a fair amount about Vanishing Twin and just, like, got in it. So... Essentially, there are a lot of like um, sort of like adverse effects because uh, it can create sort of like autoimmune and other issues, right? Because you got somebody else's DNA in your body, and your body's totally. like, "What?" Yeah, it is not um, a, a typical situation. Um, so you know, we've seen like um, problems where it seems to be sort of uh, related to um, you know some like autoimmune diseases um, or other sort of problems, um, right? Because your body just can't survey itself the way the rest of ours tend to where it's like this is foreign and this is me because Mm -hmm. that line is blurred from basically the beginning Um, and you know you sometimes see some of those like chimera qualities right right? like where um, you know like a, a like a husky with a one brown eye and one blue eye like that sometimes like also happens in people and like that could be evidence of um, this phenomenon that's like neutral there's nothing necessarily wrong there but that chimera pro- can cause problems um, I actually found a case uh, to keep up with this sporto story I've crafted <laughs> for us here of a bicyclist in 2005 who was accused of doping because of these discrepancies in his blood sample but he came back and was like I had a vanishing twin <laughs> And this isn't my fault, which is so amazing. amazing. Yeah, Gina Colada, um, best name in journalism, um, (laughs) of the New York Times, like wrote about this and like this controversy that ensued. This doctor who also brought up Octomom, I love him. um, (laughs) You know, he was like, there. There's really no way to test it, but everything seems to suggest that it really only is neutral or causes problems. So yeah, that was the answer to. Tula's teratoma question <laughs> posed by the uh, incomparable film My Big Fat Creek Wedding. Wow. Wow. And also Marshawn Lynch. Yeah, sorry, Marshawn. Well, I mean, no, that's great, though. He can just take credit for being, like, the strongest dude around because it didn't yeah. have anything to do with that right. He's other even placenta. stronger because, if anything, it could have been negative. There you go. Yeah. Amazing. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Me. More, I am a robot. Listen to Last Week in Tech. Thanks for that introduction, robot. I'm Stan Horacek, one of the hosts of Last Week in Tech, a podcast from the popular science editors where we take a look back at the week's big technology stories, including everything from new products, social media, and even future tech, yes, like robots. You can listen on iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, wherever you get podcasts, or if you are a robot, just stick your antenna up in the air and tune into our frequency. Listen, or I will destroy all humans. <laughs> Thanks, robot. But please do it because he's not joking. All right, we're back. 
And I'm going to jump in with my fact. Before I get started, my fact this week was inspired by and largely informed by uh, this new book called The Poison Squad by Deborah Blum. Um, We get a lot of books on our desk from publishers, more than we want, but I was excited to see this one uh, because Deborah Blum is great and especially on the subject of poison oh yeah so like don't the poisoners mess, handbook is don't that mess with her one? yeah that, oh god that book like so good is a big part of why i became a science writer actually it came That's out beautiful right around when <laughs> i know i know <laughs> i just love poison um no but it came out right around the time that i was thinking about getting into this field and is just so compelling and it's about uh kind of the birth of forensics and the height of poison. Uh, So anyway, the poison squad, not actually about intentionally poisoning people, but about, uh, well, the tagline of the book is one chemist's single-minded crusade for food safety at the turn of the 20th century. Romantic. So (laughs) with that plug, let's get into it. Lots of people complain about all of the like difficult to pronounce non-food food that's in our food. Mm. Mm-hmm. But most of us also know that food used to be full of like really egregiously non-food food. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're talking like candies colored with poisonous metals, which we discussed a few episodes back in uh, relation to deadly wallpaper. Uh, we're talking backyard leaves ground up and sold as green tea. Mm. In 1882, Massachusetts regulators testing ground cloves found that literally 100% of the stuff on the market was fake. It was 100%. Yeah, it was mostly burned seashells. (laughs) Um, Canadian officials around the same time found that the same was true of dry mustard. All of the dry mustard for sale was fake. Um, Basically, any ground spice was more likely to be charcoal or literal dust than an actual spice. Uh, One New York spice maker bought 5,000 pounds of coconut shells in a year to burn and grind up into various spices. And ketchup, as we discussed in our episode on ketchup grading standards, was often made from discarded pumpkin skin, dyed Ugh. red, and pepped up with like vinegar and cayenne or paprika. It was a big problem. There was a lot of food that was just completely not what it said it was. Food adjacent. Right, right. <laughs> so milk was uh, was a great example of how off the rails this stuff was getting in, in the 19th century. Because basically, it was this lack of regulation coupled with the Industrial Revolution and like people living in cities and buying packaged food instead of like being responsible for creating their own food mm. and buying it from people who lived down the street. You know, suddenly there was this huge market for food being made and produced and shipped at this huge scale, but there was no regulation whatsoever. Mm. So really dangerous situation. And then also because people were living in cities and working in factories, their health was already like total crap. So it did not, they they had no constitution to deal with this, this nonsense. Um, Milk was especially disgusting. Uh, This is all from uh, the poison squad. Much of the stuff on the market was what's known as swill milk, which was taken from cows raised in their own filth and fed on the leftover mash of distilleries. Like, it was a way for distilleries to make more money. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, Basically, everything on the market was watered down. Uh, The cream was skimmed off to sell at a higher profit. (laughs) And then because the watered-down milk would be kind of bluish, they would add whitening agents like chalk and then, like, warm it up color-wise with molasses. Oh, my God. Yeah. Or just sell it a Star Wars blue milk. Like, this is an easy (laughs) fix, you guys. And how did they make up for that missing layer of cream at the top? 
Well, according to uh, Deborah Blum, some of them would squirt pureed calf brains at the top oh, of the bottle. I know. Truly horrifying. Oh, don't eat Love brains. It. They'll give you prion disease. I mean, they won't necessarily give you prion diseases, but as we discussed <laughs> Uh, in, in our episode not, with organ meat. It's true. It's you don't a, want pureed calf brains in your milk. No. Um, and then, or, or really, I don't want them ever. <laughs> but that's a personal choice. Right, exactly. Um, so, and the, to top it all off, on top of the pureed calf brains, retailers were also starting to add preservatives to everything, but especially to milk to keep it fresh for longer as they're trying to, you know, ship it, sell it in cities, what have you. Um, and some of this was like good faith, like we want our product to last as long as possible, but it was also very common during this time to like actually try to turn back the clock on rotting food and be like, we're going to add all these chemicals to it to make it fresh again. And right. I think people thought that was like genuinely a thing they could do. Like it's like the alchemy of food science. Right. But they, they also knew they, they were selling people rotted meat. But and like stuff. fresh cow brains. <laughs> yeah. And th- according to some, um, thousands of children were dying in New York City alone every year due to tainted milk. Yikes. So like bacterial growth. That makes sense. Yeah, it was just absolutely disgusting. And so the question is, how'd we get from there to 1906 when Teddy Roosevelt signed the Pure Food and Drug Act uh, and finally made it actually illegal to just put poisonous whatever in food? Thank you, Teddy. Good old TR. And it's largely thanks to a man named Harvey Washington Wiley, who we talked about in our ketchup episode. And more importantly, it's thanks to the men he poisoned. (laughs) Oh, no. We're going to say the title of the book. It's the Poison Squad. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. So it was a nickname given to a group of a dozen men uh, brought on by the government to test food additives for safety because um, Wiley was on this like personal crusade to make food safe. He was Honorable. like, this cannot stand. Um, there, there are calf braids in the milk. Also formaldehyde. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? And he he and others kept pushing the government to regulate. But one problem they came up against, uh, in addition to just like the pursuit of capitalism over the well-beings of uh, poor children in cities, was the people didn't know whether additives were actually that toxic. Um, so up until then, human experiments uh, on borax which was a very common uh, preservative additive and also a cleaning product as we know Mm. it now. Mm. Um, Up until then, human experiments on it were basically limited to scientists self-dosing and one guy who fed borax to three kids, uh, just three like randomly selected children of various ages. He says they were fine. Uh, John Marshall of the University of Pennsylvania is a chemist who ate enough to give himself diarrhea. Up until then, that was really the only study saying that Porex was bad for humans, but he ate like a lot of it. So that wasn't really a hero. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wiley's plan was to get a bunch of young, robust men as guinea pigs because very sound logic. He was like, we're going to pick people who are really healthy and large uh, you know, generally speaking, so that we know that if things hurt them, they're going to hurt small children and elderly okay. people, okay. You know, sick people. They would get free room and board, and they'd be fed three closely measured meals a day uh, with a control group and a group with the potentially dangerous additives. Wiley, of course, was like, who knows what we're going to find? Maybe borax is totally fine for you. We need data. Maybe um, you die in this free room. <laughs> right. <laughs> they did have to sign a waiver, but later on when he was uh, like called in front of uh, a hearing to like talk about whether it was okay that they did this, he was like, oh, I didn't think anything would happen. It's <laughs> just like, we didn't know, so I figured I'd have the sign a waiver. Um, 
so they they made this like really nice space uh he was like you know it has to be a pleasant environment like we have to know that everything is is good except for these additives we want these guys to be happy and healthy so they got a bunch of people interested he was worried maybe nobody would want to but (laughs) they got a bunch of responses um mostly because there were a lot of like clerks working in the city on really low salaries and the idea of not having to pay for food or rent for a few weeks was really appealing very problematic start (laughs) yes absolutely um and they actually got uh the chemistry bureau received applications from people all over the country there's this one i'm going to read real quick Dear sir, wrote one applicant, I read in the paper of your experiments on diet. I have a stomach that can stand anything. I have a stomach that will surprise you. Oh. What do you think of it? My stomach can hold anything. (laughs) So um, they got their their crew together. I'm going to start writing cover letters and like advising people (laughs) to just do that. (laughs) Applying for anything? Try this. What What do do you you think of it? it? (laughs) My stomach can hold anything. So... Um, they ended up with clerks who were mostly actually from the agricultural department itself. Yes, they were men who like needed the monetary support, but they also weren't like hauling the entirely disenfranchised people of the city off the street. Yeah, they weren't uh, like, feed me anything. Yeah. Um, and also, to be fair, they were getting probably the cleanest food anyone in America was eating because because to it make- was coated in borax. <laughs> <laughs> No, incorrect. That was not what I meant. (laughs) To ensure that the borax was the thing affecting their health, Wiley really carefully sourced food that was not dirty or contaminated in any way. The first farm-to-table meal. (laughs) No brain milk. Yes, precisely. One thing that I thought was really funny, because I I was familiar with the Poison Squad in in broad brushstrokes before I started uh, reading the book, but um, one factoid that surprised me is that I'd always heard that, you know, they they dosed the meals, and that was it. The guys knew what they were getting into, and um, they... What I found out is that they actually they tried to hide it in the food, but the guys like caught on and just started eating less of the food oh. that uh, it was hidden in. So they ended up having to actually make them take borax pills with their dinner because they couldn't successfully hide the borax in the food without affecting how much the guys ate. It's almost like humans don't want to be poisoned. Yeah, almost. Um, One thing that is also really funny is that people in the press really fixated on the fact that they weren't allowed to snack outside of meals, like that Mm. they had to only eat the food that was part of the experiment. That, to me, is a scandal. <laughs> they were like, they can't snacks. even have a friendly beer that was in a paper somewhere. Um, and then there was this, this upstart newspaper man named George Rothwell Brown. He was at the Washington Post. And he came across a really like dry description of the study and was like, I smell a story here. But then Wiley was like, we want people to take this seriously so we can't talk about how absurd it is that we're all sitting around eating borax. Like, don't talk to George Rothwell Brown. And um, so he started just like making up drama uh, he would like follow the participants around and try to like get intel on them, but then he would just kind of make up stories about like a paparazzo. Yeah, he was very <laughs> much a paparazzo, and he then put out he put out a bunch of stories about it. And Wiley was just like, "Oh my gosh, this this guy George is just like you know libeling us, <laughs> libeling my poisoning yeah. of other people." But it came to a head when he wrote an article claiming that the borax had turned the subjects pink. Okay. (laughs) And the best part is that 
women started to write to the chemical bureau asking how they could get those no. borax pink complexions. No. So uh, the Washington Post did have to admit that George Rothwell Brown had just made that up. That was <laughs> completely not true. Um, so when all was said and done, uh, the, the study was actually really valuable and the ones that followed because... Wiley found that low doses accumulated over time. Like mm. the guys got more sick. Um, he was kind of switching them back and forth between being guys who took the borax and the ones who got clean food, mm-hmm. which wasn't the best experimental practice, right. but it kept them from getting super sick. And it did show him that, you know, like the second time you were in the borax group, you were sicker than the first time. Sure. And the third time you were sicker than the second time, which showed him that. Uh, it accumulated that, you know, Mm -hmm. it didn't leave your system quickly enough for the acute dose to matter, which was really important when it came to this food contamination issue because most people were not eating huge amounts of borax, but they were eating it every day because it was in their milk and it was in their butter. So even if you were just drinking a glass of milk a day, putting butter on bread, you were eating enough borax every day that over time it was going to have an impact on your health. Wow. Um, yeah, that's fascinating too because like basically you would only be responding to the stuff that made you like throw up in the moment and you'd be like, this is bad. Right. Whereas like yeah. this was like where we can prove only with research. Right. Yeah, well and even the animal studies leading up to this, generally what you would do is like give an animal some poison and if it didn't die right away, you were like, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> there is no long-term consideration. So yeah, this was really the first time people were looking at like, what does it mean to have something be a food additive where it's in your system in small amounts every day Mm -hmm. versus just saying like, yes, obviously if you eat a ton of arsenic, you'll die. But like, what's a little arsenic? (laughs) A little bit every day. It's pretty bad. I listened to the wallpaper episode. I edited it. It's true. A little bit of arsenic every day is is very bad. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more quick fact. Hey pals, looking for super cool popular science merch? We've got you covered at popsci.threadless.com. Pick up t-shirts, notebooks, and mugs with iconic vintage covers and illustrations ripped from the magazine. Plus, check out our podcast store and rep your favorite shows like Last Week in Tech and The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. That's popsci.threadless.com. P-O-P-S-C-I And we're back, and now our amazing and long-suffering producer, Jason Letterman, is going to share his fact. Oh, stop. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so my fact is about uh, the only person to win both a Nobel Prize and an Ig Nobel Prize. Um, And I came across this fact because every six weeks I write and host a live trivia show here at Popular Science. It's called Pop Sci Quiz Show because we're very original. <laughs> Last week, one of the rounds was about Nobel Prizes and Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, so you may have heard this if you were watching. And if you're watching, thank you. <laughs> so let me tell you a little bit about Andre Geim. He is a professor at the University of Manchester and was in 2010 um, when he won and shared the Nobel Prize in physics with and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this. Konstantin Novoselov, mm. mm-hmm. Novoselov, for their groundbreaking experiments regarding the two-dimensional material graphene. Oh, love graphene! Yeah, Sounds graphene's familiar. great. Great material. Their experiments were in uh, 2004, mm-hmm. right? So this is only six years after, which is not a whole lot of time. Um, and even Geim himself, in a Q and A with Nature, 
said, uh, I slept quite soundly without much expectation the night before the Nobel Prize were announced. that's a very short time for a Nobel Prize. Yeah, he said maybe he thought 2011, like maybe 2014. He didn't think six years. But what is graphene and why did it win a Nobel? Um, Graphene is a 2D plane of graphite, and it's a single sheet pulled from a block. Okay. Right. I have a quote here from Geim. He said, it's the thinnest possible material you can imagine. It also has the largest surface-to-weight ratio. With one gram of graphene, you can cover several football pitches. In Manchester, you know, we measure surface area in football pitches, (laughs) which is soccer fields. That's super thin. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's also the strongest material ever measured. It's the stiffest material we know. It's the most stretchable crystal. It's vibranium. It's vibranium. (laughs) Because that's not the full list of superlatives, but it's pretty impressive. A great yearbook caption. Toot your own. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It also conducts electricity and heat very efficiently. In fact, it's been modeled that it would take temperatures of 5,000 Kelvin or... Uh, 8,540 degrees Fahrenheit or 4,726 degrees Celsius to melt graphene. Heat. Heat. (laughs) So it can get very hot. It conducts electricity very well. But what's sort of amazing about this Nobel win is that at the time there weren't a lot of practical applications for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're like still sort of figuring it out. Like it's used in a lot of electronics parts and Mm -hmm. they think one day it could be used for foldable cell phone screens like... Also, didn't we talk on um, the uh, last week in tech about how like they're trying to make it into hair dye too? Because like it could. Oh, be, I've definitely seen studies yeah. about graphene hair dye. Because it's like it's like as th- you know, like thinner as thin as a human hair, yep, and yep. so you could like have it as a color and just sort of like like graft it onto your head. Yeah. Wild. Yeah, on our other podcast, Last Week in Tech, which all of our listeners should also check out. And Jason also produces. I do also (laughs) produce it. And you've heard an ad for it where uh, Stan Horacek pretended that he was a robot. I thought it was charming. Thank you. So I want to get back to the discovery of graphene in just a second and move uh, 10 years earlier to 2000 Mm -hmm. um, when Gaim won his Ig Nobel. Whoa. Yeah. What is the Ig Nobel? So the Ig Nobel is given out by uh, a group called Improbable Research, and it's, quote, for achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think. So not for iguanas. <laughs> if your research involved an iguana, it, it could. Oh, fair. True. And he yeah. laughed at the iguana. Right. Got it. Um, but So as, <laughs> but as an example of think. what an Ig Nobel would be, do you remember in 2015 Volkswagen went through the whole EPA emissions scandal that yes. they were faking their, their data of how clean their cars were? Yes. So they won an Ig Nobel in 2016 for solving the problem of excessive automobile pollution emissions by automatically, electromechanically producing fewer emissions whenever the cars are being tested. <laughs> yes. So that's an example of like what you get an Ig Nobel for. It's, it's sassy and funny and makes okay. you think about the research. Though not all of them throw that much shade. That's true. That was a particularly <laughs> shady one, and yeah. I truly enjoyed it. So what did a man who is brilliant enough to win a Nobel Prize in physics Uh, for a revolutionary material due to win an Ig Nobel Prize in physics. Uh, And this is reading straight off the Improbable Research website. Uh, He and Sir Michael Berry won for using magnets to levitate a frog. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's good. Magnets, how do they work? How do they work? So in the book The Rise, Creativity, the Gift of Failure, and the Search for Mastery by Sarah Lewis, Lewis interviews Geim, and uh, in 1997, he was at Radbound University Nijmegen in 
the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Dutch is very good. Mm. <laughs> Tulips. Yeah, <laughs> that's about the extent of my Dutch. <laughs> Where he was looking into the effects of magnetism on water. Okay. Um, and he has since said he doesn't quite remember why he did this or why he acted in such an unprofessional manner. Interesting. Um, but one day he decided to turn on his electromagnet to maximum power uh, and poured the water straight onto it. Okay. And so what he found was there were little spheres of water, and he was curious as to how these magnets were defying the Earth's gravity. And so from this, he started doing what he called Friday night experiments, uh, where he does yeah. <laughs> crazy things like just to see if they'll work. Oh, man. Yeah. And this so, guy must have been so popular. He sounds dope. He yes. is cool as heck. <laughs> and he also is like pretty funny when people ask him about this research. He's just like... Yeah, like, if you don't have a sense of humor about it, what's the point? (laughs) Um, A joke is not funny once you've had to explain it. Yeah. So one of his Friday night experiments was putting a frog in the water and seeing (laughs) what would happen. And I actually brought a video with me that we will put up on Popsci.com. He recorded it? Yeah, he did. It was supplementary material to the April 1997 edition of the journal Physics World. And people thought that this was an April Fool's joke when they first read it. I mean, were they wrong? Yeah. They were not wrong. But uh, <laughs> I, I have this see video. The frog. I am showing you the frog. We want the frog. <laughs> you can see this frog <laughs> oh, in the sphere of water God, spinning around. This is like a around. Teletubbies clip. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't know what I expected. It wasn't that. Wow. Yeah. It's just floating there, spinning around. Um, it's crazy. It's Having like, fun, I hope. Yeah. Parkour. <laughs> Parkour. Uh, and so Geim's Nobel Prize is also partially due to a Friday night experiment because he was trying to figure nice. out how to get graphene from graphite. And what he settled on was using a normal piece of adhesive tape of scotch tape on a pencil. Okay. And, and then just put it on and peeled it off. And that's how they started to get graphene. And there's a more complicated process <laughs> wow. for for getting the single layer, but like that's how they got it off. There's a moral here. I don't want to speculate about anyone's recreational activities, <laughs> but I really feel like we may have some very specific uh, legislation in the Netherlands to thank for the discovery <laughs> of graphene. And the Nobel Prize goes to Amsterdam's permissive marijuana culture. So to be fair, right, there are plenty of organizations, and the most notable is, is Google, where they will give time to people to work on their own projects. And um, Eleanor, I think you and I were talking about this the other day, where like several of Google's big features have come out of mm-hmm. people doing their own projects. Mm-hmm. And Geim says that since the beginning of his career, 10% of his research has just been things along the lines of these Friday night experiments I where it's him just yeah. messing around and seeing what is possible. And seeing what is possible. Well, I didn't think that I was going to get emotional about a frog <laughs> on a magnet, <laughs> but this seems like a very beautiful thing for us to have heard about. Thank you, Jason. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. You. Thank you for having me again. Oh, anytime. Uh, anytime. Since you are literally always in the room with us, it is uh, it is That's no true. thing. <laughs> I am I am the secret fourth person who is always here. 
Uh, so what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? I'm going to give it to twins. Yeah, twins has it. So Double trouble. I'm so happy. Eleanor, two weeks in a row you've won. <sighs> it's all downhill from here, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I um, am very happy to have gotten to the bottom of this. Yeah, thank, and thank you for um, haunting my nightmares forever. <laughs> As always. As always. <laughs> the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editor, Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.